Hello and welcome to Composer Chat, a podcast where we talk a little about music, a little about life, and a whole lot about whatever nonsense happens to come up otherwise. I'm your host, Jason Nitch, and each week I am joined by one of my favorite composers out there in the world. It's my show, so that's why it's my favorite composers who get the invites, and you're just going to have to live with that. Stick around, we're going to do a deep dive with some of the most creative people in the world. You're listening to Composer Chat. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Composer Chat. I'm your host, Jason Nitch. Yes, I'm a composer, and yes, I'm here every week. But each week, I am joined by a guest composer of my own selection, and we will spend the next hour talking about them with frequent interruption by me. So I'm really excited about this week's guest. So uh, Catherine Joy, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about our conversation and hearing you talk about your career for those of our guests that may not be as familiar with your work as I am, can you give us the uh, the real quick uh, snapshot of kind of, you know, what kind of work do you do? What kind of music do you write? That kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm Catherine Joy. I'm a composer for film, media, and live performance. And uh, I've been doing a lot of work in the indie scene. Some of my latest credits that you can check out include uh, Women in the Front Seat, which is on Amazon and Tubi. Potato Dreams of America, which is VOD everywhere and also on Tubi. Um, Naughty Books is a documentary that um, won Best Indie Feature from uh, from um, Film Threat. And uh, that's available on Hulu and Sundance Now. So, yeah, I, I work both in the in the narrative and the, the documentary and the animation world. Um, and I've been doing that for over a decade. Um, and then also I run a score production company called Joy Music House. So I score produce, which means I spend a lot of time in the recording studio producing with musicians uh, my scores and the scores of composers from all over the place and uh, working with a great team of people at Joy Music House that, that love to do the same thing. So that's me in a nutshell. Well, that's terrific. And I I would encourage anybody listening to check out all of your work because it's it's really tremendous. Uh, a lot of really, really neat projects that you've been involved with. So thanks for thanks for kind of giving us that. Um, can you talk just a little bit about kind of like what's your origin story in music? How'd you get involved in music in the first place? You know, kind of what was your entry point to just being involved in music at any level? Yeah. Well, my mom is a concert pianist. Um, I'm from from Tasmania, Australia. That's where I grew up and I spent most of my young life in Australia. Um, when we were all born, me and my two siblings, I have a brother and a sister, we were all, you know, kind of thrust into the music world. Um, I ended up being a violinist and a singer. My sister played flute, my brother played guitar. We did a lot of playing together as a family. As far as my dad goes, we, we would always say he played the tape recorder. Um, which is a little outdated now, but he's a he, you know, <laughs> turned into a great recording engineer, thankfully. So a lot of our work over the years was documented by his wonderful recording. Um, but you know, even though the whole family was into music, I was definitely basically predestined to follow in my mother's footsteps. And that led to a really interesting journey for me because, you know, I she she was a, a concert pianist in the in the classical world but 
it became very evident to me as I kept growing up that the classical world wasn't where I was going to end up. And I was pretty sure, you know, as I was young, that I was definitely not going to become a violinist. Um, I didn't feel like I had the skills nor the discipline um, to become a classical violinist because that's, that's a lot of work. Um, and uh, I fell in love with jazz, uh, you know, when I was finishing high school and the way I actually made my way to the States was um, wanting to study jazz and to be a jazz singer. And I ended up at Cornish College of the Arts in Seattle, Washington. I spent 12 years in Seattle. And and as I was studying um, jazz singing, uh, I had this interesting experience where, you know, we were singing through the standards, you know, working our way through the rule book. And um, there was a lot of songs there that I either struggled to connect to authentically or really more than that, felt like I couldn't bring something to it that that hadn't already been done amazingly by the likes of Ella Fitzgerald, Shirley Horn, Anita O'Day. Uh, and that drove me to start composing my own music. And the minute I started doing that, I was just like, whoa, this composing thing is awesome. And I just fell deeper and deeper in love with composing um, I studied music theory. My mentor at Cornish was was the late great James Knapp, who was both a phenomenal jazz trumpet player, but an incredible composer. And a lot of his work is on YouTube. Um, yeah. He has a jazz theory book out on Amazon, and he really was just um, top notch. And uh, and so that's how I really became fascinated by composing. Interestingly enough, it took me um, a number of years to realize that I I could. I could let go of being a performer and focus on composing. Um, I was still getting a lot of pressure to perform and and that led me to quit music. I actually quit music completely after my undergrad. Wow. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people have experienced this when they studied music, especially in a college setting where at the end of it, they're just exhausted sure. and they may be a bit disenfranchised. Um, and that's really where I found myself. There was also a lot of things going on in my personal life. But at the end of my undergrad, um, I just really came to a moment where I just wanted to walk away from all of it. And I did. And I ended up doing a stint in the world of renewable energies engineering, <laughs> oh, wow. doing that's administration for that. Yeah, no, it was, it was super fun. I made a lot of great friends, a lot of hippie, you know, <laughs> super smart engineers who were brilliant humans and um and it was really cool because during that break, um, I, of course, came back to to music very quickly, um, but just started to redevelop my relationship with music on my own terms. And I, I think it's interesting when you spend a lot of time doing music as a kid, especially when you are like in my situation where your your number one mentor is a parent, um, you know, your relationship with music can end up being very influenced by obligation or feeling like you're doing it for someone else. And as an adult, when you're facing life in the arts um, and the, the massive challenge of that, because it is a very difficult thing to sign up for, it is so important to come to it on your own terms and be doing it um, just for, in, you know, for intrinsic reasons, um, reasons that have intrinsic rewards, um, not for money, not for obligation, not because you feel like you should be doing it to make someone else happy, but because, you know, that is the only place you could imagine being. And so as I came back to music, it was, I was developing that thing. I did a bit of elementary school music teaching 
which involved, you know, five-year-olds holding percussion instruments at 8 a.m. And that (laughs) I cannot do ever again. (laughs) That just, you know, that just drives me to alcohol immediately. Um, So I was like, okay, teaching, at least teaching that age group, that's also a no-go. And at that time I was teaching, I was trying to get, I was getting my master's degree in music education. And it was right around that period where, you know, an email just found its way into my inbox about um, this one night a week film scoring certificate program run by Hummy Man. Um, Mm. And, uh, you know, and I was like, music, you know, music for film, interesting. And it's so funny because this had just never occurred to me to do this. But, you know, I had had many kind of conversations with myself about how I loved composing, but composing in the academic world wasn't for me because, you know, I really like composing music that people right now like to listen to and and music that's, you know, maybe kind of pretty. I like pretty music, you know, I like <laughs> I like music that makes people feel and, and it really connects with people in the moment. And I was like, wow, music from media, like it just honestly had never occurred to me. Um and uh, I went to this first night of this film scoring certificate program and uh, and Hami was describing what being a film composer was. And he's like, yes, it's writing music. But he's like, you know, in, in this situation, you know, you're part of a team. It isn't about your vision for the music. It's about the director's vision. You're, you're part of this much bigger group. And then he's like, it's also about networking. You know, it's also about developing relationships with directors. It's about you know, data management. It's about software. It's about hardware. It was like about all these things. And it was really cool because I'm sitting there in this class. I'm in my early thirties. So I've been, you know, I've been around for a while and, uh, and he is describing this job that basically ticks every box of all these skills I've been developing over the years, you know, as, as a performing musician, as like a jazz musician who's composing and performing music as someone who's worked in administration in renewable energies, you know, you learn a lot about data management and software and hardware in that position. There was no wasted moment. As I looked back on my life, there was no wasted moment. Right. Mm. But looking forward, I was like, Oh my gosh, I think I may have finally found exactly where I fit in the music world. And I'd never felt that before my whole life. I knew I was supposed to do music. I felt like everything I was trying just wasn't the right fit. So there was this incredible relief I felt in that moment that continues to sustain me and the sense of, you know, I'm finally doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. And and that was in 2009. And since then, you know, that feeling has just, you know, increased for me. Um, so it's been a really great experience, but I encourage your listeners who are out there who either feel like they're too late um, you know, you're never, I feel like you're never too late to do what you're supposed to be doing. In fact, I always feel like you're right on time. It may never feel that way, but as I look, you know, with the, with the benefits of hindsight, as I look at, you know, my whole career point and career to this point, it always feels like I was right in time, you know, for these kind of pivots yeah, in my, yeah. in my creative journey. Um, and I feel like everything I did benefited what was upcoming not in a way that I could anticipate at the time but certainly in a way that I can see from this standpoint wow that is that is really fascinating that is a uh that is a really long journey 
um, you know, to get, to get to where you're headed. But, you know, I, I think one of the things you touched on is very applicable is that it, I, I feel very much the same way when I get to kind of a new point in things, I feel like everything I've done up to that point, it really is what helped me get there and really prepared yeah. me for it. And those are the skills that I needed to have before I could go and do this other, this other thing I was really interested in. So it's, it's really interesting to hear, uh, to hear you talk about that. Most, most of my podcast guests up to this point have been, you know, concert uh, composers primarily and not a lot of people that do a lot of media work. So I was very curious to see kind of, you know, what your perspective was going to be on things like that. And so how, how really fantastic. So you were in the middle of doing a music ed degree when you kind of came to this discovery about, you know, what your, what your future career might look like. Yeah. And, you know, I finished, I finished my master's in music ed and and now I teach I'm I'm adjunct faculty at NYU in their Masters of Screen Scoring program. So I'm finally even putting that degree to use, which which is a relief. Um, yeah, sure, it, sure, yeah. It's and, and honestly, it was doing that degree. It was it was um, you know there's some composition and arranging courses that I took um, in my music degree from Boston U, and especially the arranging course just like really got me excited again about composing. Um, so it's just funny, all those things that kind of nudge you in the right direction, um, little bit by little bit. That's, that's wonderful. I, I took that arranging course at Boston U also. Oh, um, really? Uh, yes. Many, many years after you, after you did, because I have a, I have an unfinished dissertation that is languishing in a, <laughs> in a crate over in, in the corner of my, of my office right here. In fact, I could see you, it if I just can see it right lot. now. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Also, also in music ed from, uh, from BU. So yeah, <laughs> I, I, I took that class. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I, I did not enjoy it as much as you, it looks like you did. Um, oh no, I, I really struggled <laughs> with it. You know, it was, it was a battle, like every step of the way. I mean, it was a very challenging course and, you know, I did it remotely. Um, and I, you know, credit them that, you know, back then it was way, but like so much work now is remote. Sure. I feel like Boston U was, you know, one of the people really leading the way on that. And, you know, it, I think the assumption is when you do remote classes, they're going to be easier and know that everything about that degree kicked my butt. Um, yeah. And very tough. Uh, yeah, very tough, but you know, agree. you feel like you're earning it. <laughs> yeah, very much. I the, definitely earned that degree. The thing I remember <laughs> most about that class is I remember, I, I don't even remember who was teaching it, honestly, at the time, because I purged it from my memory. But I remember I had a, a great like multi-week, um, I'm not going to say argument, we will say professional disagreement with them about <laughs> about what was acceptable for, you know, French horn scoring, because the textbook said one thing, and I wanted to do something else. And they were really annoyed with me that I would I would scan these pages of scores and I would send them to them and be like, look, see, Aaron Copeland did it that way. Look, Bernstein did it that way. Like just because the textbook says I can't do it that way. That doesn't mean you can't do it that way. I, they really, they got annoyed enough with me that they kind of gave up, but um, that was, <laughs> and I probably, um, I probably let my hard headedness get the better of me in that. Uh, in that you know, they say you gotta, you gotta land the rules <laughs> before you break them. It's so funny because when we're when we're orchestrating with Joy Music House and you know everyone on our team they're great orchestrators and there's been so many situations where an orchestrator sends me something you know and I'll be like I'm changing this. Yeah. yeah. You didn't do it the wrong way. 
but you did it in a way that I don't like, and I would prefer for it to be this way. So I'm changing it. And I apologize oh. because you did nothing wrong. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I'm the boss and this is how we're going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and it's, know... it's funny. There's so many ways to do this in the music world, but at the end of the end of the day, you know, you just, everyone has their, have has their preferences and you got to make the boss happy, whoever that is. Sure. No. Yeah. I, I get it. I, I earned my A minus. Um, <laughs> that, that kind of leads me to a, um, a different question. We're going to go off script for a second because, you know, um, I, I pivoted maybe about 10 or 15 years ago and I started doing a lot more electroacoustic work. And so a lot more work with sample libraries and, and things like that. And I, and in the film scoring world, I'm sure that was just something that you, you very natively ran into very early on because it's just so prevalent. And so I wonder, like, one of the great surprises I had, and and I'm going to ask if, if maybe you had a similar situation, was how I almost had to relearn how to score because scoring in in the in the software is not the same as if I'm scoring for a live, you know, group of musicians. I had to almost relearn how to do some things. Did did you experience anything like that, or or is that something absolutely. you run into? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's such a you know, it's a completely different skill, right? And uh, working with MIDI, um, learning samples. You know, I, I always say that I wish I really wish sample packs came with time. It's like <laughs> here you get these sounds, and then you get ten extra hours to dedicate to learning how to use these sounds because it's yeah. like. Every sample pack of, of sounds, whether you're, you know, Spitfire or Cinesamples or, you know, cinematic scoring, whatever, you know, they they all have their own idiosyncrasies. You know, they all have their own relationships with all the CCs, with velocity, with mod modulation, volume, like everything. And you have to learn how to breathe life into all of these things to make them do what you want them to do. And at such it just, it is this learning curve that you are permanently signing up for because you're always going to be buying new samples. Yeah. And there, you know, there's so many samples of my drive that I've never touched because, you know, like I oh. just cannot, I'm just like, I don't have time. I Absolutely. need to go to what I know and yeah. use that. Um, And this is why I spend so much time and energy like going back into the live space because I much prefer to talk to you know talk to a violinist and be like can you play it this way rather than like one search through all my samples to find something that comes close to that and then spend the next you know half an hour uh, messing with it to make it do exactly what I want it to do or rendering it to audio and then yeah. going through my audio plugins and right. trying to make it do what I want to do so the it programming is, part of it is so labor intensive it is when you're trying to recreate what would be a, a natural acoustic performance. And then we have this fascinating experience on the score production side of things where we get, you know, we get, you know, a, a, like say a, a Cubase file or a logic file from a composer who's hired us. And, you know, the kind of classic scenario that we talk about all the time is the 12 tuba scenario where a composer <laughs> is, wanted to record this. And he's like, I wrote it for 12 tubas. And I'm like, one, absolutely not. I'm not, <laughs> not, I'm just on principle. No. But secondly, um, <laughs> when I looked at this piece of music, it's like, yeah, you wrote these for 12 tubas, you know, and you're working with great tuba samples that can do anything. Right. right. But in real life, 
these two lines here, if you want it to sound like that, French horns are going to do that, not right. tubas. And then these lines here, if you want it to sound like that, trombones are actually your ticket, not tubas. And then with this line, trumpets, you know. So it's it's fascinating because when you're taking it from samples back to real life, you know, a big part of what orchestration is today is listening to samples and, and being like, that's cool. In real life, we should actually use these acoustic instruments to achieve that effect that you've gotten in samples with those acoustic instruments. Um, I just did inverted commas for everyone listening. So it's like, <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's it, the world of orchestration has changed from here's a piano sketch, make it come to life with real instruments to here's a MIDI sketch. I use these samples. Now you take it into notation and you revisit what instruments should actually be playing at your influenced but you're not dictated by the samples because actually another instrument may be better suited and then sometimes it's as simple as this is a flute patch but it's too low so in real life it needs to be an alto flute because yeah. a c flute is just not going to have that strength right. in the lower end um so it's fascinating to see how you know the skill of orchestration that that everyone has to learn including composers that skill is now kind of redefined by the advent of of MIDI technology. Yeah, uh, I could spend an hour talking about that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that and any of these that. things we're going to talk about today, you could you could spend at least an hour on. Absolutely, and I often do. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, 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 yeah. I I know that I have I have samples on on a hard drive that I have never ever used and. And I, I don't know about you, like some of the some of the more interesting libraries that I have, where it's like I, I look through the through the samples and I just go, I have no idea based on what what this is labeled, what this sound even is. It's yeah. like, you know, frozen cathedral lizard alien. I'm like, what is that? <laughs> like, and then you know, and then I have to listen to it and I go, oh, well, why didn't they just call it like little pingy, you know, arpeggio thing? You know, like that would have been better. So a little I'm pingy through. arpeggio thing one. One, the two, little piggy pigeon thing, yeah. two. <laughs> yeah, if you don't like one, here's two. Yeah, that would be more helpful for me. So I, I get frustrated with that. Where I'm just, I just want to know what you sound like. Why does it have to be called, you know, like, you know, organic bass drum chainsaw? Like that doesn't tell me anything. <laughs> and then, I, and then I'm really disappointed that it doesn't sound to me like a bass drum chainsaw. Um, right. So anyway, okay. So um, all right, we'll 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 get back on track here. Um, so you you've decided you're gonna you're gonna go down the 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 media the film scoring rabbit hole. What was what was your what was your first big like job you got? What was the first big like scoring job that you landed that you remember that you that you sort of thought, oh cool, I'm actually doing this. Huh. The first big one. My first feature, well, actually, the first feature was kind of, you know, I don't think it ever made it anywhere but it was a great experience and you know and it's so funny because we talk about the first big thing but for me it's for me the thing that actually convinced me you know that or gave me that was heartening and made me feel like I'm actually going to do this is just like one when you when you're getting paid to do the thing I think when you start out often you're doing stuff for free and I certainly did a few shorts to begin with but I started charging pretty quickly um charging money and the fact that you know people are hiring you and recognizing that they need to pay you and then you start you know getting more projects i think 
the thing that's comforting in the beginning is when you just start to get a number of, of short films under your belt, you know, you do start to get those features happening. My first proper feature that actually made it out into the world. Oh my goodness. What was that called? It was called, I'll have to look it up on IMDb. I can't remember. It was a horror comedy um, about hunting and, uh, you know, I haven't done a lot of horror, but this is the kind of horror that is really fun to do because it was a horror comedy and it just had, it had great characters and, and great people. Um, and, uh, and it was interesting because I, I did, you know, I charged money for it. And then I found out later that I was one of the first, you know, one of the only people on the project who were actually charging. Most people were donating their time. Oh, it's called the last buck hunt. That's right. Oh, wow. Um, and then I think I think one of the most exciting points for me, you know, I was still in Seattle at this time. And and just as I was making the transition from Seattle to um, L.A., I was pitching on a project, a documentary called Gold Balls. Um, I had to audition for it and I really hadn't auditioned for anything up to that point. Um, I had just kind of landed things based on my reel or based on relationships. Yeah. Um, and people liking my music, of course, but also just like knowing the filmmaker. Um, and then this project Gold Balls came up. It had a decent budget. I knew I was going to be able to work with live musicians. So the whole prospect was was pretty exciting. Um, but I had to audition. So I spent a lot of time on that. And um, and I, I think getting the gig was even sweeter after knowing I had auditioned. And I knew who I was auditioning against. It was two of my buddies composer buddies from Seattle, both whom were, you know, great composers and uh, had been around a bit longer than me. So that that felt like a really good moment. And at that point, I was also in Seattle. I mean, in L.A. So, you know, it really felt like, you know, here's progress. Right. Yeah. Um, this is comforting. Um, and I think that year I had a, a couple of features. And I think that's that's a big thing for me is just you know, landing features, kind of staying in that place and then moving on to series from features is also like if you want to do television, which I do, um, it's really great when you get to have your own series as well. Um, but yeah, I think Gold Balls, Gold Balls is, is still on Amazon. Um, I still, I just love this movie. It's about competitive tennis in over 80 year olds. Uh, so it's a really unique subject matter. Um, Almost everyone in that film that we that we talked to has passed away, and because uh, they were all like they were all in their eighties and nineties, um, yeah. all incredible athletes. And I mean, that's one thing that's really special to me about documentaries is you get to be part of these people's lives, and sure. you get to be part of their legacy, um, which is such an honor, you know. So it was really special uh, being part of that project. Um, yeah. And so I think that was like, that was kind of a moment, a moment for me. Um, and then, you know, soon after that, I landed Naughty Books. I think a year or two later, I landed Naughty Books. And again, that was a really, again, more of a competitive situation. Um, uh, independent film, uh, indie, what's it called? Film Independent. Film Independent is a great organization. Um, anyone in film should join it. And every year they have 
they have all these different focuses, focused meetings, like on editors or like different aspects of the industry. And the composer one, you know, a bunch of composers sign up. Uh, you have to submit a three minute reel. And in, in addition to that three minutes, you get one minute to talk about yourself. Uh, so four minutes total. Um, and so I, I did, you know, I did my one minute talk. I showed my three minute reel that included um, an excerpt of Gold Balls. And I met the director there of Naughty Books and she and I hit it off really well. And and I ended up landing that gig. And again, it felt really good to be kind of on a stage with a bunch of L.A. composers and then be picked out of that to get that gig. And in that film, you know, actually the festival premiere of that film was right, like right before the world shut down. Mm, uh, so yeah. we literally got one festival screening, then the world shut down. But then Austin, our amazing director, managed to get distribution and we ended up on Hulu. Um, so that was, you know, it was just a, also a really interesting arc for for the project, um, kind of a unique arc, uh, but a good one considering the pandemic shit show. <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, for people that may not know kind of what the process looks like, could you talk a little bit about when you when you talk about as a composer auditioning for a job? Like, yeah. can you kind of talk through like kind of what that process looks like for you in terms of like what they ask you to do and kind of what you how you go about doing that? Yeah. Well, a classic audition for a project um, is when they send you a scene from the film and you have to score it. Um, you know, usually doing this for free, sometimes they will give you like a nominal demo fee. Yeah. Um, but a lot of times, especially in the indie world, it's, you know, you're, this is, you know, this is that part of that cost is, is you, you know, just giving your time and energies to that pitch. Yeah. Um so you're scoring a scene, you know, you you have a conversation with the director about the kind of music they want, and then and then you just jump in and and start working the picture. Um, and you know, it's a big deal. I've done it a few times. I did it on I also pitched on two different animation series. I pitched on um I'm so bad at remembering names. I I, I pitched on Genlock, um, which is with Crunchyroll. And I got, I think I, I managed to get into the top five. I didn't get it, but a friend of mine get, got it. So, you know, winning still, mm. still kind of a one, a win. It was a, a woman composer also who got it, which was, which was great. Um, but uh, yeah, that the process, I was so like, I remember when I received the opportunity to audition on that, I was literally nauseous. I was because I, the stakes were so high. Yeah. It has really good Michael B. Jordan stars in it. Like David Tennant is in it. Like it's a big deal. Um, it was an interesting situation where they were changing the composer from the first season, mm. um, but they didn't mind his work in the first season. So it was like kind of like bring something new, but don't be too new. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. So, um, you know, and, and it was a, it was two scenes. One was like a kind of a more emotional scene, but one was a full on action sequence in animation. So it was a lot of work, but, and I was terrified of it, but it ended up being a lot of fun. And I had, I had a lot of fun working on that. And I'm really proud with the music I did. And I kind of proved something to myself too, which was, you know, that I could do that kind of thing. 
So, um, you know, and, and when you're auditioning, the thing you have to remember is it, it just just getting an audition is a win because you're getting your music in front of people. And and, you know, the chances of you getting the gig, honestly, especially when you're doing doing bigger auditions like like for an, an like an animation studio piece in LA, you know, there's going to be a lot of people competing, yeah. but the fact that your music is even getting into that room, right. It's pretty dope, you know? So it's like, you know, you, you need to go all out. Um, and the other audition I did in, in the animation world was actually for the new, um, for a new uh, part of the uh, Transformers, you know, empire. Um, mm. It was an animation based on Bumblebee. Um, oh. Bumblebee had a school for, I don't know, other Transformers, something <laughs> like that. So yeah. it was like a younger age range, um, but still Transformers, um, but more like fun. Yeah. So that and I was pitching on that as a co-composer with another composer. So that was, you know, again, a really cool process. So you just learn a lot when you're auditioning. So you can be working a picture. Um, but I just lost my AirPods. There we go. Um, the other way that uh, that auditions might happen is that sometimes you know they don't give you a picture but you they do want like a custom reel of music mm, yeah. from you and and i think that's also a really interesting challenge because you really have to listen carefully to how they describe maybe they'll show you bits of their of their film or maybe they'll they'll share with you some music that they're using as temp in their film right. or maybe they'll just tell you like kind of want it to sound like this, sound like that. And that happened to me um, when I was bidding on one of my most recent features, Home is a Hotel. It's a documentary um, about the housing crisis in San Francisco. And it was fascinating because they were like, we want, you know, the music in this film is not actually going to be so much score. It's just these musical interludes. We want it to be like old Hollywood, jazz chord, big strings, Mm, yeah. And I was like, okay, interesting, you know, and it was like, one, this is just so up my alley, like, I love doing this kind of music. Um, but it was really interesting kind of putting together that reel. And the the thing I always lead with is like, I am not saying this, everything in this reel is perfect for your film, but aspects of each track, I feel are similar to what you're asking for. And then the best thing to do in that situation is being like track one, you know, like maybe it's instrumentation, maybe it's, you know, the style of writing, you know, may, you know, it's like, this is what I want you to be listening to when you listen to this track, as, a, as opposed to you could take this track and, and paste it into your film, which is rarely the case. Yeah. And sure. um, the interesting thing about Oh, it was actually another audition I did for another, also a San Francisco feature. Um, same kind of thing. They wanted a custom reel. And in that custom reel, I put um, two tracks from my EP on there. And that wasn't film music. Mm -hmm. But the music they were describing to me, I was, you know, they wanted string quartet music. My EP was string quartet. And so I picked these two tracks. And one thing that one of the directors said that really stuck with me was that they liked my reel because they felt like the music was swinging for the fences. And it was interesting because the they said that about a track that wasn't actually film music, right? That was yeah. a track I'd written away from picture where I was just kind of going for it, right? And so yeah. often in your audition, you're kind of presenting in a way that's actually bigger 
than what will actually be in the film. But you really need to show them what you have. Um, and then likelihood when you're actually scoring the thing, and that was certainly the case with that project, you're you're dialing everything back because right, you're working right, with right. picture. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. How fascinating. I uh, I was talking with another composer friend of mine recently, and we were both saying how we get we get older. Uh, we just want to release a, a an, an album of of all of our rejected um, audition pieces. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh. And you know, maybe at that point we would say, ah, here was here was this job I didn't get, and here's the music I wrote to try. You know, and and uh, you know something like that. We thought that it would be a lot of a lot of fun because we we certainly all have you know buckets full of those kinds of things. Yeah, um, absolutely. Well, um, that's that's all fascinating. Um, can you talk for a second? I'm really interested to know your answer about this one. This is one of my favorite questions that I ask um, visitors to to the podcast. Do you have have you made like a a studio purchase, hard, hardware or software or anything that that you have that you've brought into your life that has immediately changed like everything for the better? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Sound toys. The package room sound toys. I think every composer should have it. Yeah. And the interesting thing is that like, you know, when it comes to studio purchases, whether it be hardware or software, this is like perhaps the greatest barrier economically for composers, right? Is the hardware and software aspect of things, especially when it comes to software, especially when it comes to samples, right? When you have... Poor sounding samples or, you know, you know, the not not the best stuff. Right. Um, you feel like this is handicapping you when you're going up against, you know, people who have like the best samples on the market, whatever they may be. Right. Now, I feel like we live in this we live in this fantastic era where there are a lot of samples out. There's a lot of free samples now um, or, yeah. you know. And there's or there's a lot of cheaper samples, especially older samples are cheaper. Mm-hmm. But you do need to find a way, like in addition just to purely being really good at programming, um, which is a skill thing. It's not a money thing. Uh, Absolutely. You, you need to find a way to give yourself an edge. And I feel like, you know, sound toys for me especially, but really any kind of, you know, audio plug-in packet and often even just exploring what comes with your DAW, what comes in Logic, what comes in Cubase, DP, whatever you're using, uh, Pro Tools, you know, learning how to utilize them and and make them so your your music, even if you're using like the crappiest samples, you can absolutely bring to life those samples with, you know, the benefit of, of these plugins. You yeah. know, it just... You can, and you can get so creative. There's just really no end to how you can completely transform MIDI and also audio that you record yourself, you know? And I I feel like that's a superpower that everyone has. It really, you know, like even if you have a cheaper microphone, you can still, you know, record things, track things, and then just start messing with them and modifying them. And you can create a sound that is so unique that no one else can go and buy on the internet because you made it in your studio with your limited capability. And it just sounds super special. So I think that is kind of one of the, the most powerful lessons I've learned and something that, 
you know, I always try and do that on every score. I always like render something to audio and then just start messing with it and see how I can transform it. And then that's mine, you know, forever. And no one will be able to recreate that in exactly that way. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Boy, I, I can remember uh, many years where I would sit and I would wait and I would go, what's the Black Friday heaviosity sale going to be this year? Because <laughs> <laughs> I need, I need more, more stuff, you know, and, and, and now I listen to things, new things that come out and, and I'll, I'll watch and I will literally go, is this a slightly better string library than the one that I have? Is this a little bit better French horn sound? I can't really decide, you know, like. <laughs> I really have to just like heavily justify to myself any sample purchase yes you know because yeah. i have i have a lot of samples and as right. i mentioned a lot that i don't use yeah and you know it's like should we buy that you know like for me really when i'm buying these days i'm buying less or or you know organic simulations mm. like a new french horn patch and i'm spending more time buying you know synth things or things that aren't organic that will you know spice up you know, the organic stuff that I already have, or hopefully the organic stuff that I'm going to track. Um, yeah. But I, I think also, you know, I'm, I'm trying to just spend more money on when I'm using acoustic instruments as much right. as possible, like yeah. finding a way to record at least some of them live. Yes. Uh, Agreed. And, and then, you know, I mean, we're all, we'll always be using patches and, and, you know, I'm fine with that. Like, you, you know, it's, they're instruments in and of themselves. Right. And, sure. and um, I'm grateful for them, but uh, you know, it's, I think it's, it like you can buy too many and it's just like half the time you're not even using them. And as you said, they sound so nominally better than the last thing you had. And then you have to spend the time learning them. I don't right. have that time. I can tell you right now, I do not have that time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I don't have the time now. At, at this point, I already know this is my favorite pizzicato library, and this is my favorite, yeah. <laughs> you know, exactly <laughs> my favorite exactly. popcorn, and this is my favorite, you know, low trombone sustain, and yeah, all all of that. You, it's definitely a rabbit hole that you that you go down very quickly. So uh, that, that's great. That's fascinating. Um, listeners to the show will know that my uh, life changing purchase was a vertical mouse. Uh, which I am a big proponent of. Logitech is not a sponsor of the show, but I highly, uh, I highly endorse their vertical mouse. Excellent. Um, it has, it has saved my, uh, maybe it has staved off my carpal tunnel for a little while. Right, right. Um, all right. Let me ask you this, and this, this is, uh, I'm, I'm actually, I'm really fascinated by what you may say about this too, because you work in such a different um, arena than some of our other guests. Do you ever experience like writer's block? when you're working on things? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think I mean being being a film composer and and working heavily, you know, in response to temp music. Mm. Often um will at least stave off writer's block because you always have an example of what the director wants sure. right yeah um so my process with writing is i listen you know i listen to the temp i make notes about it i have notes from the from the directors from our 
spotting session, you know, when we watch down the film together with the temporary music. I have notes on like, we like this about the temp music. We don't like this about the temp music or maybe temp music is awful. Go in the opposite direction. Yeah. Or it's awful, but we do like the fact that it's piano. We want some piano. Right. Right. Um, right. So like whatever those notes are and I, and I watch it with the music and then I watch it without the music. And then I try what I try and do before I write, before I actually sit down to write what I try and do is just have an idea in my head that I write in my head um, that's there before I sit down. So every time I sit down to write, I try and sit down with something that I'm going to try. It may be the wrong thing. I'm not pushing, putting pressure on myself for it to be the right thing. But we, but I have an idea that I'm going to sit down and put to picture. Yeah. Um, and then that, you know, usually once you have one idea, it will lead to something else. Uh, one of the first lessons I learned in in film scoring, and I mean, this is just a thing when just writing music in general is to write in your head as opposed to by doodling on the on the piano or, you know, whatever instrument is your instrument of, of preference. You know, when you write in your head, you're not limited by the instrument and by the, you're not influenced by the sound of that instrument. The problem with doodling on the piano is that you're or or any instrument is that you're influenced by the the physical mechanics of that instrument right you know if you're writing on the piano you can always you can kind of hear when people wrote something on the piano because it's it's playable on the piano you know even sure. if it's like yeah, a, yeah. even if it's a string line right? right and and it's like if when you're writing in your head you can write something that's just kind of free from those limitations and then you can choose what instrument you're going to designate it to um, so even when I'm writing um, concert music, which, you know, I write at least one concert piece a year, usually multiple pieces uh, this year, I started out the year by writing a, a brass, um, a, a piece for a brass consortium. Um, so it was for, for brass, harp and percussion. And it was a phenomenal experience, but I really tried before I, and I wrote it, I think primarily in straight into notation. Um, I think I started actually on on paper um, and then then moved to notation. I think I spent I may have spent a little time in the DAW, but very little time. Um, but yeah, I really tried to hear hear the ideas, you know, make sure that my main themes were written out on a piece of paper. Um, and so I had a really clear vision of of them and how they were going to develop. Also, with that concert piece, I also just wrote down a bunch of techniques that I wanted to have in the piece. I was like, at some point, I'd really like to have a canon, you know, mm. I want to have, you know, this like echo effect where something happens in one instrument and it's just like, you know, and kind of is, is responded to by, you know, by the, the fellow instruments in that ensemble or instruments in it. I mean, in that instrument group or in another instrument group. So, you know, I was like, I want to try all these things. And, when you have that kind of thing mapped out, you it, it kind of kills composer block because I mean writer's block because you you have something to try. Sure. Yeah. And I think another thing that I've always tried to do is you know when I'm struggling is is like write the wrong thing. Mm, yeah. Sure. <laughs> if you can't figure out the right thing to write, write the wrong thing because as soon as you write the wrong thing, it becomes very clear why it's wrong. Yeah. That's not right. It needs and you know. 
usually the the response of your brain is like that's not right it needs to be that well now we know what to try yeah no so, yeah that's that's um, excellent yeah that's like the advice. george costanza approach do the opposite right <laughs> <laughs> yes i very often i have a lot of experience writing the wrong thing so i i relate to that comment really well <laughs> i uh i am a second draft composer <laughs> yeah it's the best way to be man I need Best at least, to live in the I second need at least draft. one time through that we can just throw away immediately and then, um, and then start again. Um, okay. Well, um, let me ask you this. Um, what kinds of things are you interested in? Non-musical things. You have any non-musical hobbies or anything that you are, um, that you are into? Yeah, absolutely. Um, cats. Definitely. I have, I have two. You can see one of them right now. See the one. Um, yeah, you see the one, and the other one is also like reviewing our podcast right now, oh, judging sure. us from yeah. the second couch. Yeah, I get that. Um, I let you know. For me, like I love to to read. I love to walk. Um, I I am an islander. You know, I'm from Tasmania, so so being near water, on water as much as possible, mm. whether it's walking at the beach or swimming or kayaking or going on a boat ride or just you know, and that's a Again, you know, a lot of these things are also things that that refill me. I I think the challenge as a creative is that, you know, we're just constantly pulling out from ourselves. You know, when you're when you're composing as a job, you're you're pulling from yourself and and putting it in front of a client and and getting it rejected. And it's, you know, it's a really um it's a really challenging thing to sign up for because just pieces of you are being rejected all the sure. time. Right. And, yeah, yeah. and as much as we try and separate or justify or, you know, try and keep perspective on what's going on, that's, a, that's the reality. Right. So finding ways to refill um, is, is critical. Um, you know, I tell people like, people are like, you're so busy. And I'm like, I watch TV every day. <laughs> I love TV, you know, I love like, you know, like these kind of things are are super important to me to have that that mental break, you know, so um, and, uh, and then, you know, just spending spending time with people I love, like, I, I think a a balanced life is so critical. And I do put a lot of, you know, I do spend a lot of time between composing and and running Joy Music House. And I, you know, I also teach at NYU and then I guest teach at a bunch of places. So, and I've done a lot of, you know, uh, work for, for nonprofits, um, just kind of trying to improve our industry with working with the Alliance for Women, Women Film Composers and the Society of Composers and Lyricists. So I, you know, my life is very full, but like, you know, I really prioritize that, the, you know, the time with, with you know, the loved ones in my life and and just, you know, having that time out to to refill and and have fun and so yeah that's i think that's that's all of my interests i don't i'm not you know i i'm not a big hobbyist i've tried you know i tried knitting but we do so much without we do so many small movements with our hands already that i realized that that was like a really bad way to spend my spare time was (laughs) putting additional stress on my hands that are already exhausted from playing and, and programming um, so I stopped doing that. Um, <laughs> but, so I was like, yeah, I should probably spend that time walking and not just like creating new opportunities for carpal tunnel syndrome. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I also, you know, 
I definitely did like even pre-pandemic, I was baking a lot of bread and I haven't done much of that lately, partly because I live right next to a, a wonderful bakery, but oh, I do, yeah. I do enjoy baking and cooking and, you know, so much, so much of that time I'm thinking about composing, Sure. Um, but you know, it's, it's just so important to spend time writing like away from your writing place <laughs> yes and just like letting your head you know figure out figure out the problem yeah I, I get my best ideas when I am doing really mundane menial tasks um vacuuming and yeah. mowing, mowing the yard and things where my mind can just sort of like I'm not really thinking about anything yeah um and I I can get this really great you know, melody or something, or this really great idea, or now I can figure out how that really broken transition I wrote can work. Um, you know, so yeah, that's, that's really great. Well, we, we are almost out of time. Um, I, I end every, uh, interview with the same 10 questions, which I think somebody actually has pointed out there may only be nine, but, um, I wrote on my sheet <laughs> that there are 10 questions. So I'm going to keep calling it 10 questions, even if they're not actually 10 questions. They are, um, the 10 questions are frivolous in, in nature completely. Um, right. So you can, you can feel free to, to, uh, to take or pass or, um, you know, give or give add. A, so we or, have 10. Or, or add. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you feel like you have a 10th question you want to answer that I didn't ask, you can add it on. So, um, but we will, we will just rapid fire um, um, through this and, and we'll just, we'll see what you say. Do you have, um, do you have a favorite food? Oh my goodness. Yes. I would say that um, soup dumplings, chow long bao is my favorite food, specifically pork soup dumplings. Nice. I and I that. think the happiest place on, on earth is uh, anywhere that sells soup dumplings, but especially Ding Tai Fung is uh, my happiest place on earth. <laughs> I love that. So not, uh, well, we were going to get to happiest place on earth, but you, you kind of spoiled <laughs> that one now. Now we're down to eight questions. I'm sorry. Um, do you, do you have a favorite place to vacation? Is that it? Um. Oh, to vacation. I would probably say Europe. Um. To be to be super broad, I you know I've wanted to spend time in Europe, and I finally got there last year. I was in both France and in Belgium. I was in Belgium for the World Soundtrack Awards, and then I managed a side trip to France, and uh, it was absolutely wonderful. And that is somewhere I would like to spend a lot more time. Just on that continent exploring everything wow yeah that is wonderful i was supposed to take a trip to europe this summer and uh, it's been two weeks there and i did not <laughs> <laughs> because of reasons um you need to reschedule um, that <laughs> uh, yes we're going to do that we're going to do that at some point do you um do you have a favorite color um something something around purple purple pink blue just kind of in that in that space is yeah, it's my favorite color. Like Purple, blink, pink, blue, red, that kind of spectrum. It keeps getting bigger. So we should go to the next class. <laughs> I think I know the answer to this because I think it was while we were talking. What What's the last thing that you Googled? Oh. Was, um, it, was it you? Was it your IMDb? <laughs> no, it wasn't. I mean, I looked that right up. The last thing I Googled was actually today. And it was like, how much, how like the difference between an EP and an album, like how many tracks does an album require? Oh wow! And it said seven to, I think it was like seven to, or more than seven basically, or 35 minutes of music minimum. 
because I was very curious as to where that EP, you know, EPLP kind of sure. divide is. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I didn't know that. Now I have, I have, I have <laughs> learned something. The more you know. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, normally I ask this question about um, concert composers, but I'm going to rephrase it. And I got to really think hard about. Uh, I can hang uh, okay. with the concert composer question. That's my yeah. background is concert music. Well, so I don't know. I, I kind of feel like I need to I need to specialize this one for you just to make it just to make it great. Who do you think would win in a boxing match between, uh, let's say, uh, let's say, uh, let's say John Williams and the late Jerry Goldsmith? Oh, oh, who, who man. do you think wins that boxing match? I mean, honestly, I would say Jerry Goldsmith. Yeah, personally. So just is he just more? Is he just more feisty? Yeah, you know, I just feel like. Oh man, I mean everything I'm going to say is just going to upset people. But, you know, oh. I mean I think I think it's partly like a personal preference thing when it comes to the the range of music they've composed, you know, like I, I feel like Jerry has done like a lot of he did a lot of like similar work to to like John Williams most renowned work but then jerry has stuff like he's work on alien and you know like just right. like some really he has some really like groundbreaking yeah you know he i mean i think i love john williams i'm not like a you know i'm not like a super john williams fan like a lot of my friends um partly just because you know that kind you know i feel like john williams is is does more of the Germanic composer kind of sound, mm -hmm. you know, and I am definitely more a French leaning or, or chamber or, you know, like my favorite John Williams score is catch me if you can, you know, it's not Star Wars oh, yeah. or yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. it's not ET. It's like, catch me if you can. It's like, you know, he's like more like smaller. Yeah. Different kind of stuff, you know, Mine is, that uh, is Angela's ashes. Right. I really right, love his right. score to Angela's ashes. And I say that to people and people go, wait, what? yeah i know because everyone's like no, it's really Wars, brilliant you know <laughs> yeah so like i know he can do that kind of stuff but you know when you look at jerry what jerry goldsmith is known for it's like it's like such a range you know like so right yeah sure i'm saying jerry <laughs> yeah 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 good old friend jerry i i actually i just bought the score to alien and i i can't wait to like rip it open and like yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna sit and listen to it and and watch it go by because it's just it's that's such a great that's such a great score, um, that's wonderful. Okay, um, all right. So Jerry Goldsmith wins. Um, end of round. Do you um? Th this is a great question. This is always fascinating. When you when you go to bed, uh, socks on or socks off? No oh, socks on. Socks on. Okay. For like right. half an hour and then they're off. But oh, like, and then they're, they're off. They're, okay. Yeah. All right. But they definitely need to be on when I go when I go to bed. They come yeah. off sometime in the night. I get it. Yeah. Um if uh if you were gonna do any job other than what you do right now, what do you think it would be? Would it be teaching somehow? Um, it probably it'd just be probably running a company of some some sort. You know, I, I like being in charge and I have a really good brain for administration and management. So you know, like, I don't know if you if, if you ever watch Friends, but they had like a what if scenario and, and Phoebe Buffay was like, she ran like a 
stock shop. She was like a big boss at a stock options. And I was just like, yep, there you go. That that would probably be me just like yelling into the phone and bossing people around. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. My, my wife is a big friends fan. I, I watched it when it was on. She, she, she really loves it. So it is, it is on quite frequently. And I, <laughs> I remember that episode you're talking about. Um, do you, um, you know, I know you say you, you watch a lot of TV. Do, do you like to binge watch things? Or do I do. You like to one week at a time. I, I like both. You know, I really enjoy it when shows I love are put out one episode at a time. Like, so like one, one example of this is Great British Baking Show. You know, that's currently Netflix oh, is sure. putting out a new season of that. And that's, that's you know, one week at a time. Project Runway does the same thing. Um, Netflix does the same thing when they when they, the new Formula One uh, season comes out. I love that. I'm a big gearhead. I love cars. So uh, I oh, love nice. their Formula One yeah. um, reality show. I think it's absolutely fascinating on so many levels. And car shows always have great music. I don't know if you've noticed that, but they have they do. big, big cinematic music. If you if you listen to the music, Ooh, they do. If you ever watch Top Gear, the the original UK Top Gear, just the music that was on that show <laughs> was incredible. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I so I appreciate it when when streamers um, do ep- release things one episode at a time. I also like it because. You know, the thing I, you know, when I grew up in Tasmania, we had, you know, three channels and the, the TV would go off after midnight sure. um, when I was, especially when I was younger, you know, there wasn't 24 hour television and the magic of watching like the new episode of VR when everyone else was watching the new episode of VR and talking about it the next day. like right. And the, right. the same thing happened with like Game of Thrones. I never watched it, but it was always really fun. Like hearing my friends after they'd watched that new episode sure. of game of thrones you know you an and immediate i love reaction i love the community aspect of watching and listening to things you know i love i still love listening to radio um because it's it's just something that's really magical about it yeah yeah i i'm the same way i will binge watch things but i i i like i like the anticipating of waiting the week yeah. And knowing like, ah, new Ted Lasso this week or, or there's a new Mandalorian or whatever it happens to yeah, be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You no, know, exactly. what's going to happen this week? Oh, it's okay. So, um, all right. Well, Catherine Joy, it has been a joy, <laughs> as I'm sure uh, most people would say. Um, any final thoughts you want to leave us with before we say goodbye? Well, I just really appreciate you having me on and uh, I encourage anyone to to find me on the socials. Feel free to hit me up if you have additional questions. I'd love love to hear from you and you know i just want to encourage everyone out there who's thinking about being a composer that they just do it just write the music oh, um, see and i i need to hear say, everyone's voices <laughs> i often say the opposite i say don't do it it's a it's an endless <laughs> you know hole from which your soul will never escape like it's also you, that don't do it unless but, you, you know, absolutely have to I think your soul will end up in some hole, and I, I think the the composing one is is not not too shabby a hole to end up in. Not a not so, a bad place. So to why be not? In. So yeah. um so where can they find you on the socials? Where's your your website and all your tags and things? So my my website is Catherine Joy Music, and on all the socials I'm at Kath Joy Music. Um and uh, yes, and I also encourage you to check out my company Joy Music House. Um, but if you start with one, you'll find your way to the other. So, or you can just Google Catherine Joy. 
and you'll find me and you'll also find the wrestler with the same name. We look very oh, different. So hopefully how you fantastic. can tell Yeah, I know. <laughs> how fantastic. Catherine Joy the Wrestler. Well, um, everybody give Catherine a follow and watch for all of the really cool creative things that that she has coming up and everybody on her team at Catherine Joy Music. Catherine, I appreciate you so much taking this time to talk with me. It has been a real pleasure and uh, I hope that we get to do it again sometime soon. Great. Cheers. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks so much. Composer Chats brought to you by SCM Media. Is your audience dead? Bring it back to life. And thanks to my guest this week, and thank you for listening. Don't forget to watch for next week's episode with the next composer on my list. And you can find my other podcast, Beyond the Belt, Adventures from the Outer Rim, a sci-fi drama, anywhere that podcasts are streamed. Listen free. Seasons one through three are out now. You can find me on Instagram at jasonnitch.composer. You can find me on threads at jasonnitch.composer. You can find me on the Facebooks if you're old like me, Jason K. Niche. You can find me on the web at jasonnitch.com or at beyondthebeltpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.